From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's Columbus Day, but should it be? Coming up where the debate over the holiday is headed in Colorado. Then a lung disease in young people, not those vaping cases. This has to do with workers who manufacture countertops. They get an illness that's usually associated with mining. Meet a Colorado physician who saw a string of these patients and moved fast to pinpoint the cause. Then the Nepal earthquake in 2015 killed 9,000 people. It became a chance to rebuild stronger, and a Colorado woman dedicated herself to that cause. Later, a husband and wife write a musical about raising children. It's called In the Trenches. You toddle about, doubt my cloud as a father again. Tiny steps on the bricks towards the sounds of a big brass band. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Columbus Day. For some, a day to celebrate Italian-American heritage or even immigration. For others, a painful reminder of brutalities Christopher Columbus himself inflicted on indigenous people when he sailed to the Americas. Several states and more than 100 cities have changed the holiday to Indigenous Peoples or Native Americans Day. Colorado state lawmakers have proposed similar bills. They have failed, but are gaining momentum. Avery Lill covers indigenous issues for CPR. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. Let's start with Christopher Columbus, the explorer. Remind us why he's a controversial figure. A quick refresher. Columbus was from Genoa, which is now a part of modern Italy. He sailed under the Spanish flag in search of Asia, and he landed in Hispaniola. That's an island near Cuba. He brought back gold, spices, and enslaved native people back to Europe. And during his three subsequent voyages, he explored various Caribbean islands as well as Central and South American coasts. He never actually set foot in North America. Hmm. But there's a much darker side to Columbus's interactions with indigenous people he met in the quote-unquote new world, especially the Taino people who he subjected to forced labor and sex slavery. Columbus actually wrote letters promising slaves to the Spanish crown, right? He did. And one of his own crew members, Bartolomé de las Casas, he became disenchanted with Columbus and colonization. He wrote that Europeans had waged war on native people and treated them worse than animals. But that is not how people viewed the explorer when Colorado officially recognized Columbus Day more than a century ago. Right. Colorado was the first state to make Columbus Day an official holiday in 1907. It became a federal holiday three decades later. I spoke with William Way, the state historian and a history professor at CU Boulder, about how people viewed Christopher Columbus back then. He told me that a book by Washington Irving from 1828 was really influential. It's called A History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. People celebrated Christopher Columbus because they viewed him as an intrepid explorer. He was basically the uh, Captain Kirk of an earlier age. So the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic organization, and an Italian man from Denver named Angelo Nochi, he pushed for a holiday to honor Christopher Columbus. And Way told me that Columbus Day became important in the Italian-American community because they faced a lot of discrimination at the time. And what changed, I mean, at least for some? It's been a slow cultural shift. Way pointed to the civil rights movement in the 1960s and to Native American activists. Scholars published accounts of Columbus's brutality that were in stark contrast to the romanticized version a lot of people learned in school. 
There have been protests, including when Native American protesters blocked a huge 1992 Columbus Day parade in San Francisco. Native American advocates around the country, they've pressed states to repeal Columbus Day or change it to Indigenous Peoples Day. Seven have made that change. What is up in Colorado with this? It's looked a little different here. Five bills have come before the Colorado state legislature since 2014. Just one of them was to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. That failed pretty quickly. Last year, a bill to change Columbus Day to Colorado Day made it further than any of these bills had made it before. It made it through the House and the Senate, where it died in committee. Representative Adrian Benavides, a Denver Democrat, sponsored that bill. She explained her bill wasn't about recognizing one group of people over another. One of the arguments is you're taking this away from Italians, you know, and the response to that argument is no, no one's taking anything away because we don't have days that commemorate the contributions of any group. We don't have a Hispanic day, a black day, and the fact that some people celebrate their Italian heritage on Columbus Day is sort of an incidental thing. She's speaking there of government holidays. She says it's critical to acknowledge that Christopher Columbus inflicted trauma on indigenous people, and there's a reason to replace Columbus Day. Okay, and her idea is to replace Columbus Day with Colorado Day, which is celebrated in August when we got statehood. So I guess the idea would be to move the holiday essentially to August, right? Right. So they don't actually want to get rid of a holiday that state workers have off. They just want to move it. Currently, Colorado Day isn't a day off. There is movement on this beyond the legislature, though, right? Oh, definitely. Several major Colorado cities recognize Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day, like Denver and Boulder, also Durango and Carbondale. There was also a march protesting Columbus Day in downtown Denver over the weekend. I gather this is a deeply felt issue for Indigenous people in Colorado, as well as for Italian Americans. What's the response been to some of these movements? For sure. And probably the best way to explain this is just to let you hear some of the testimony from the last legislative hearing about changing Columbus Day to Colorado Day. Rich Sabel opposed the bill. He helps lead Colorado's sons and daughters of Italy in America. The truth is that this is an attack on everything it means to be an Italian-American. This national American holiday honors one of the most prominent figures in American history. Columbus' accomplishments and role in the very foundation of this country is undeniable. This national American holiday honors the great contributions and extreme sacrifices of our Italian ancestors who came to this country in the hope of a better life for their families and for us, their descendants. Now, I want to clarify, it's not that all Italian-Americans feel the same way about Columbus Day, but many of those who opposed the bill said celebrating the holiday is important to them because of their Italian heritage. And on the other side of that, here's testimony from Anua Francis, a Denver 7th grader who represents Colorado Indigenous People Youth Alliance. He's Hopi and Navajo. In school, I was taught only positive things about Columbus that he was a brave explorer who discovered America. I was taught Columbus was a hero while I was denied an education about the great things and achievements of my own people. People have tried to erase the horrible things he did. I want you to know that Columbus Day is hurtful and painful to me and to other Native children. Okay, the Columbus to Colorado Day bill failed. So what's next? Representative Benavides told me that she will introduce another bill in the next session to change Columbus Day to Colorado Day, and the legislature reconvenes in January. Avery, thanks so much. Thank you. Avery Lill covers indigenous issues for CPR News. 
People who make countertops are getting an incurable and sometimes deadly lung disease from the dust. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control, which has been tracking cases in four states, including Colorado. Typically, this disease, called silicosis, is seen in older workers, but recently there's been an uptick in patients in their 30s and 40s. The thing is, this is preventable. So what's gone wrong? Dr. Cecile Rose of National Jewish Health in Denver has witnessed this spike herself. Dr. Rose, welcome back to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You've treated patients with silicosis for more than 30 years now, but you started noticing something different in 2017. What changed? What I began to notice was that there was an uptick in patients with silicosis who seemed to be younger and who seemed to be not the typical older miner with silicosis, but rather people who were working with engineered stone. Who had been the patients in the past? They were miners. What kinds of mining were they doing? In Colorado, we see miners who have worked with metal and non-metal, the so-called hard rock miners, who are, especially when working underground, at risk for developing silicosis. Okay, so you see younger people, and these are folks who probably have never been in a mine, and you think, something's changing. That's right. It was unexpected and unexplained. So we looked back through my clinic records and found that, in fact, there was an upsurge in the number of people coming with silicosis. Yeah. What were the numbers? Give us a sense of this. Well, typically, over the course of my clinical time at National Jewish Health, I would see maybe two people a year with a new diagnosis of silicosis. So fairly rare. Fairly rare, yes. But Over an 18-month period of time between 2017 and 2018, we found that I had seen, in my own clinical practice, seven patients with silicosis. Health experts believe the cause is an increasingly popular artificial stone that is used to make countertops. What is different about this new material versus, say, granite or marble? The artificial or engineered stone is a mixture of quartz, which is crystalline silica, along with a resin. And it contains over 90% crystalline silica, as opposed to granite, which typically contains less than 45%, or marble, which contains less than 10% of this crystalline silica. Okay, silica is the key term here, and it's obviously at the root of the disease, silicosis. What is uh, so nefarious about it? What is nefarious about crystalline silica is that it stimulates an inflammatory reaction in the lung that over time can lead to permanent scarring, progressive scarring, and sometimes fatal lung disease. And what are the symptoms if you have silicosis? The symptoms of silicosis are typically shortness of breath with exertion that gets worse and often a dry cough. And I suppose these were patients of yours who didn't expect any kind of lung trouble. They weren't perhaps smokers. What what was their state of mind when they walked into your office? Most of the workers who we describe in this report, these seven cases, were never smokers. There was only one current smoker, and none of them expected to have silicosis from working. They didn't know why they were short of breath, and they were surprised to find out that they had a work-related lung disease. So I imagine you did some investigating. You look over the patient's files. You try to find common denominators. How 
clear, how quickly clear was it to you that this had to do with their work in countertops? It became quite clear based on the occupational history that they had been in the stone fabrication industry and working with this engineered quartz containing stone material. So with a careful work history, it became obvious that this was the source of the problem. And then this is something you report to authorities, whoever the authorities are, I gather. I reported this to both OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, as well as to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Okay, Jose Martinez is 37. He's a father. He worked for years as a polisher and cutter for a countertop company. Uh, He says dust was everywhere. And he recently told NPR he was diagnosed with silicosis after feeling weak and dizzy. I can't play with my kids outside because I get tired really easy. You know, when I go to sleep, uh, I think about it every night. That if I'm going to die in three or four or five years, and I have four kids, my wife, because to be honest with you, every day I feel, feel worse. Nothing is getting better. His experience is one of 18 described in a new report from the CDC. Uh, Dr. Rose, you're an author of that report. Uh, again, the case has come from four states, Colorado, California, Texas, and Washington over the last two years, all involve people who worked mostly with engineered stone. And they're mostly Hispanic men. Uh, Many had a severe and progressive form of silicosis. Talk just a little bit more about the findings beyond Colorado. The findings beyond Colorado were alarming because there were two workers who had died in California, both in their 30s, of severe, progressive, and fatal silicosis. Is it just that they're unable to breathe? They, they just stop breathing? What, what is, why death? The scarring in the lung becomes so profound that the lung can't absorb oxygen, so the patient dies of respiratory failure. My goodness. Uh, the disease is incurable. I have that right? That is correct. Okay, but it is preventable, and I think that's really important to talk about. What do some of those prevention measures look like in the workplace? Well, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, has a new standard to regulate silica dust levels in the workplace. It is important that engineered stone fabrication establishments follow the OSHA standard and keep the dust levels under control. That's probably the most important thing. And there are ways of doing that through the use of ventilation systems, work practices that involve using wet methods and keeping the slabs of stone wet. I see, because that prevents the dust from flying around. That's correct. That's correct. Um, This is very fine dust. And if it's not well controlled, then the workers are at very high risk for developing this disease. Is it also about having the workers wear a mask of some sort? Respiratory protection is a good prevention strategy, but it's very hard to wear a respirator throughout the course of an eight-hour workday. I think about the fact that I've worn one when I've, you know, painted, and after five minutes, my mouth is sweating, it feels gross. The idea of doing it for an entire day, that's a lot. It's really hard to imagine having to do that. And, of course, it interferes with communication, the dust uh, filters have to be changed. There are all kinds of challenges with just relying solely on respirators as a way to protect people. So it's much more important to use 
uh, work methods like wet methods to avoid dry sweeping and to use uh, ventilation systems. Okay, so are employers doing this? Help us understand whether the OSHA rules are making a difference here. It's hard to know whether employers are complying with the new OSHA standard. Many of the engineered stone fabrication establishments are very small, and they may have limited resources in terms of access to it. Uh, dust control systems or training of their workers, they may just not have invested in that part of worker protection. Well, that sounds worrisome. Is this something that workers, one, are aware of, and two, would potentially take legal action over? That's expensive, too. Well, that is expensive. And, you know, legal action has to occur only after disease has occurred. Mm. So the most important point here is that the exposure needs to be controlled so that the disease can be prevented. And I imagine you're helping get the word out to these employers, small and large. We are certainly trying to do that. And we've had help from the CDC, from the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and, you know, through messages like media, as you're helping us do. It's fascinating. We were looking into this. Silicosis, a very old disease, dates back to ancient times. It's been referred to as one of the oldest known workplace hazards. It seems a bit frustrating that something we've known about for so long might still be plaguing folks. It's extremely frustrating. Uh, We know how to prevent silicosis. It has been known for, as you say, centuries Um, And so it's really a failure of prevention that we're facing here among these workers. Very briefly, do you think that there's anything to be said for consumers here? Like, should we stop buying engineered stone? I think that's a good question. Uh, There's been a huge uh, increase in the market for engineered stone. It's durable. It has many good qualities. But because the quartz content is so high, it is vital that consumers make sure that if they're buying it as much as possible, that they're buying it from a responsible uh, seller who has tried to protect the workers. Thanks, Dr. Rose. My pleasure. Dr. Cecile Rose, pulmonologist at National Jewish Health, professor of medicine at CU Denver. She's been tracking an uptick in a disease called silicosis, which has been appearing in younger workers. Entire villages were wiped out in the 2015 earthquakes in Nepal. This is from BBC coverage at the time. We lost everything. Did you lose members of your yes, family? Yes, yes. My mom and, you know, my brothers and whole villages, and they lost everybody, you know, they lost their families, and, and no one has nothing. No, we have nothing. Stories like that propel Lindsay Kruger of Golden. She's an interior designer, but in the rugged mountains of Nepal, she has led construction of homes for more than 300 people. Kruger will share her story at Denver Design Week, which starts Thursday, but she's here with us to share the story today. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You actually started working in Nepal a couple of years before the quake, which means you saw something of a before and after. Take me to the first trip you made after the earthquake. What did you see? What did you hear about how people's lives had changed? So when I first arrived back, many of the buildings in Kathmandu were still laying in rubble. Some of the people's houses that were still standing were being propped up by just lumber and sticks and things just to because they were afraid of what might happen next. And when I arrived back out to the villages, 
was interesting how the earthquake was kind of selective. Some people still had their house standing and were going about life doing their farming. And then the vast majority of other people were living in whatever they could strew together out of things they pulled from the rubble to sort of create a tent out of tarps and sticks and whatever they could find. It was a makeshift life for a lot of people, it sounds like. Definitely, which lasted longer than you would hope for any people. Yeah. How long after the quake were you back in Nepal? So I arrived back maybe about nine or ten months later after I was able to shut down my, you know, like wrap up interior design projects here. But I started working right away with our ground partners over there. So we were already trying to come up with solutions uh, to build people new housing to get them back inside. The indiscriminate nature of the earthquake is so fascinating that you might have a house standing and then you might have one that wasn't. Yeah, I think that relates to both the plate tectonics of it, how the mountain is moving, and how old their house might have been and what style of construction they had done. I want to note that 42% of the population in Nepal lives in poverty. So I gather people were not generally insured. They didn't have savings to draw on. No, yeah. No one really had any type of homeowner's insurance, and then savings was almost non-existent. And so that was a big part of it is that to build in a way that adds some level of seismic control added a lot of cost. And that just blew it way out of the water for anyone living in a rural district to be able to rebuild. You talk about people rebuilding as they could from the raw materials in the destruction pile. I don't imagine that's a very solid way to rebuild. Yeah, we, um, you know, that's what they were living with. It was what they were living with at the time when I arrived back was more like a tent than really any type of constructed uh, building. But when we go back in to help them, we are very selective about the materials that get reclaimed. So nothing that's uh, non-structural. Okay, we'll talk about that uh, just a little bit later. But how did you start working in Nepal six or so years ago? I originally went over um, on a... Denver chap- Denver's chapter of Architecture for Humanity did a project over there. We worked on a school. We designed and funded and then went over and built it. And during that time, I saw that people's homes were not helping them achieve any of the goals that maybe like other nonprofits were working on, say, for schools or health. Then they go home to their homes, which have no level of health or ability to support their education, studying, or Mm. anything like that. Some people barely had what we would call a home at the time. And so you thought, if I can help ensure a better home, all of these other efforts to educate them, for instance, to lift them out of poverty will be boosted. Yes, exactly. We could support all of the things that they're working towards. And then these are relationships you start to build, and then the quake comes. Exactly. how are the homes different than what would have been in the village before the earthquake? Well, they actually use a lot of traditional techniques because in that way we can use traditional the traditional labor pool. So um, a lot of jobs are created through this program. But we add some seismic elements that help both in the foundation, throughout the walls, and then at the top of the walls, which... Um, So in the foundation, there's a lot more concrete and rebar. And in the walls, we have what we call a low-tech seismic control joint, which actually stops the crackings if, say, another seismic event were to occur. A seismic control joint, does that mean that there's a little bit of give? Um, Sort of. It's sort of... So the walls are made out of stone. So if that were to crack, then it reaches this horizontal plane. Ah, that stops there. Yeah, it stops there. And then it might shift, but... 
you know, overall, if the if it were a crazy, gigantic earthquake, it would give people more time to get out of the building and hopefully keep the structure standing. This is something like 68 houses I think you've helped build. Yep, 68 houses for 311 people. That must feel enormous to those people, and it must feel infinitesimal in face uh, the face of how many people were affected by the quake. Exactly. It's a hard thing to think about. So I, I actually break it down um, for myself. It's about three city blocks in Denver, the entire block. Or if you looked at it by population, it's even more than that. So to think of a very small organization rebuilding three city blocks in Denver, I, it's something to be proud of, I think. Oh, I think so. It's why you're here. Uh, <laughs> it's why you'll be speaking as part of Denver Design Week this week, and the nonprofit is called Nevis. It also occurs to me that Nepal is not easy topography to get materials into. How have you dealt with that? Yeah, so the uh, region that we finished rebuilding the entire, it's actually a five-village district, is about 35 miles away from Everest Base Camp. Wow. So, <laughs> so if you can imagine what the topography there looks like, that's one of our major challenges is um, getting materials in over the passes when it's not monsoon season, because otherwise we're just stuck. But we're able to use a tractor that comes in on a very low-tech road. Um, but if we don't get it all in on that tractor, then we're bringing it in on the backs of people or mules if we if we luck out. But that has happened. In other words, it's been on people's backs. It's been on mules' backs. Yeah, I'm actually going to show a little footage of that at Denver Design Week of people carrying the roofing materials on their backs and just slowly meandering up and down <laughs> trails. But you designed these so that local artisans would be able to be employed by this. Yep. So we start, every phase of construction starts with bringing in engineers that teach the new techniques to everyone involved, including the homeowners and any skilled laborers that might be working on the job. And so everybody kind of boosts their skill set. And then we go in and start building and everybody gets paid living wages. It's reminiscent of Habitat for Humanity in the United States in a much more uh, difficult setting, I think. Is there sweat equity for the people who will live in these homes? I think that's a critical part of Habitat for Humanity, for instance. Yep, there is. We're not all that different from Habitat other than that we're very small and hands-on and we kind of do everything ourselves. So we see the direct impact of it. Um, but yes, sweat equity is a big part of the investment in the program. So all of the families bring their labor. They actually trade labor between the families. So they keep track and they're like, okay, I did 20 hours on your job and you're coming over to do 20 hours on my job. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, but then we do have some families that say um, have a disability or are very elderly and or have really young kids. And then we bring in more skilled labor for them if they're not able to give as much. You're on to a new project now, changing your mission a bit. It's focused on women. Tell us about this. That's right. So we discovered in our last program that women really met a lot of barriers that other people didn't. They were unable to get loans to invest in their home to rebuild. Um, a lot of just discrimination within the community. So we've decided to focus this program solely on helping women who are single mothers and women with disabilities to rebuild their homes. And this is also a significant portion of the people who have not had the opportunity to rebuild yet now it that it's four years later. Sounds like the earthquake disproportionately affected women, or at least their ability to rebound. Exactly. Like their um, ability to access resources and things like 100% is more affected 
towards women. So, yeah, that's why we're kind of honing in on that. I understand that you recently took some of your supporters to one of the villages where you've worked and the locals had quite a reception (laughs) waiting for you. Paint the picture. Yes. Uh, So we arrived back. Some of the board members were able to come with because they had been working, you know, on fundraising for that project and helping figure out the logistics of it for over three years. And so they came back last fall with me. And when we arrived in the village, I just thought we were going to, you know, stop by some people's houses and be like, okay, this, we built this one, this one, this one, you know? And no, there was a giant party and every single family that had built through our program made every board member a, a wreath necklace to put around their neck. And there were so many of them that we physically could not see out of the giant stack and they had to keep taking them off and putting new ones on and people were getting upset if theirs got taken off. So They had good. piled from your shoulders up to the crown of your head. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's a nice sign of gratitude. Lindsay, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's been wonderful to be here. Interior designer Lindsay Kruger of Golden, she founded the nonprofit Nevis to build housing in Nepal. She'll speak at Denver Design Week, which starts Thursday and runs through October 25th. Design Week events will focus on how design impacts economic, social, and cultural aspects of our lives. Up next, a new musical by a husband and wife about parenting. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When Colorado legalized recreational weed all the way back in 2012, not a single line of that amendment that eventually became part of our Constitution dealt with the negative impacts of the war on drugs. But states that are looking to legalize today are thinking about those things. The big question is, will it work? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Google Red Rocks Amphitheater and you'll find articles trumpeting its acoustic perfection. But we got a question through Colorado Wonders from someone who didn't hear that sort of perfection at a concert back in May. And I sat way up high. There were some sound irregularities that I noticed, especially the high notes. It was uncomfortable at points. That is Nick Stacaro of Denver. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf met up with him at Red Rocks to investigate the acoustics. We hike up to the general admission seating area where Nick Stocaro sat for that Red Rocks concert last spring. Do we need to go back a few more rows? From here, the crew members loading in the band playing that night's concert look like toy figurines. Stokero says the May concert was one of his favorite bands, funk group Wolfpack. Though the weather that night was less than ideal. When I was here for that show in May, in typical Colorado weather fashion, it had just snowed, it was cold, and uh, there was a crosswind across the entire venue. And I noticed especially the high notes, the saxophone, the falsetto singing became very powerful at some points and, you know, as the wind blew and then it got very soft at some points. Those irregularities Stokero heard from way up high, he didn't notice them in YouTube videos of that same concert taken much closer. He says the sound in those sounded good. I am curious if there are advantages or disadvantages to sitting far or close to the stage when you're at a show at Red Rocks. The thing is, it feels unfair to cast Red Rocks as acoustically perfect. If a show turns out that way, it's likely because a sound team overcame many challenges. Like the cold and snow that night of the Wolfpack concert. The band's sound engineer told me he had to mix underneath a leaky tarp, also less than ideal. 
So we're going to get some perspective from a Colorado sound engineer. I'm Andy Torrey, and I'm the front of house engineer for Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Tori has done the sound for about 20 shows at Red Rocks, including Big Head Todd's concert back in June. He says that was a pretty smooth evening. Here's a clip of it from a Rocky Mountain PBS recording. There's a lot of snow this spring and I can't remember the last time that I But they aren't always so smooth. And at outdoor venues, you might be working against the weather. The temperature, the wind, the humidity, and the altitude. And they all affect differently. Usually they all affect the high end of the mix. Tori has a guess as to what Nick Stacaro heard that night, way up toward the top of the amphitheater. The further up the hill you get, the more the wind can come into play. And the wind will affect the high end much more than the low end in a mix. A crosswind will play even more on that, and you can get a swirling in the sound where it sounds good one minute, and then... It sounds like the vocals or an acoustic guitar go away the next minute. Tori says precipitation, however, isn't necessarily a bad thing. The moisture in the air actually helps carry some of the high end of the sound, whereas the wind may be taking that away. I did a show in Aspen years ago outside where it started to snow in the show, and I don't know that it's ever sounded better. One of the things of live sound is it's over in a moment. You don't get to hit rewind. You deal with the situation and keep moving. You can't stop the wind, Tori says, but as an audience member, you can move to a place in the venue where you're less likely to hear its effects. We're at row 17. This is about where Tori would sit for a show at Red Rocks, but even this close, you'll hear some sound variances, whether you're in the middle or off to a side. Are there points where the rocks can actually reflect and create new sound waves for the people sitting in the amphitheater? I've always wondered this too. Absolutely. And every venue is like that. It depends on where you are in the venue, how the sound interacts with its environment. And here at Red Rocks, the further up we are, the taller the rocks are. So they're acting differently than down front where the rocks weren't as high on the side, the trees are a little tighter, and you're that much closer to the PA. Tori does a sound check to prepare for as many scenarios as possible. So my sound check is the same every day. I run music and pink noise, and pink noise is that burst of noise that you'll hear. Tori will send this through the speakers of a PA system. He explains that this random noise has equal energy for every octave. It helps him figure out which frequencies are being boosted or diminished by the venue's acoustics so he can equalize the overall mix that he'll send to the speakers for that night. You're all set, right? He does this work ahead of time. Sound check is over. But he's also making adjustments throughout the show. What makes having 9,000 people on this incline too, what makes that so challenging? It actually helps the sound, but the challenge is that you sound checked earlier in the day without those people. And so the reflective surfaces of the stairs, of the seats, is bouncing back at you, as opposed to during the concert where all the people are soaking up the sound. They may be yelling and screaming and adding their own noise level, but they're also soaking up the sound and creating a different environment. To get back to Stokera's question about where's the best place to sit in Red Rocks, Tori says that'll be different for everyone. Whether you like volume, it's gonna be louder down front, 
You may not like that. You may want to move higher up the hill where it's not quite so powerful. You can move left to right and it can change. So really move around and find your spot. Every venue is different. Stokera comes to a lot of Red Rock shows, about 10 every summer, he says. Andy Torrey doesn't make it nearly as often. Doing sound for a living, uh, when I come home off the road, I have a tendency to go into my house and be very quiet. But the ones he has seen here, he chalks those up to some of his all-time favorite concerts. Stokera says he now has a deeper appreciation for what's happening in the sound booth. I feel like I'm a more educated Red Rocks concert goer now. Do you come to a lot of shows? I, I, I try to, yeah. I've learned some like Red Rocks pro tips, where to park, you know, how to tailgate, the best bathrooms, the best concessions. I always wondered, where's the best seat? So I feel like I now have some advanced intelligence that can make the shows even better. Yet, even if the sound isn't perfect, Stokera says he won't be too upset. I would come back here if no one was engineering the sound and they were just playing it out of an iPod. There's something special about this place. And if that Red Rocks concert does sound really good, maybe the venue shouldn't get as much credit as the sound engineer. At Red Rocks and Morrison, I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. There's a new musical about raising children, written by a Longmont couple. Its title refers to warfare, which parenting can feel like, in the trenches. And bodily fluids are fair game, like in the tune Toddler Travel Travesty. Just when you think your traveling ability's methodical You'll hear a sound that's somewhere between bad and diabolical You hopefully have trash bags, wipes, and clean clothes nearby on demand Cause at that moment with that warning baby vomits in your hand At that moment with that warning baby vomits in your hand At that moment with that warning baby vomits in your hand At that moment with that warning baby vomits in your in your hand This is a nod to Gilbert and Sullivan. Husband and wife Graham and Kristen Fuller didn't think there were enough stories being told about parenting, and so they've created this musical, which is funny and warm. They stage it later this week in Denver, and a welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. You have two kids, I think ages seven and three. What's a parenting experience you just had to include in the musical, like there was no doubt about? Well, um, the <laughs> the inspiration for Toddler Travel Travesty um, definitely came from our first um, trip to New York with a baby. And he proceeded to get his first stomach flu in a beautiful pre-war um, building Airbnb that we stayed in. Um, and <laughs> so there was a lot of experience. It was definitely a parental rite of passage. Um, and then on the flight home, proceeded to vomit all over me on the airplane. So there was definitely oh. that paired with all of the, you know, things and supplies that are needed when you're traveling with children. Um, we were like, well, it obviously needs to become a patter song. <laughs> I had a friend when she was a new mother say, you know, a, a baby is such a small thing, but the things that a baby requires are, take up a house. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. The smaller they are, the more things they require. They require. For sure. Do you remember uh, how nervous you were traveling with a newborn for the first time? Uh, I do. And uh, I think 
to me, we, we always get made fun of when we go on trips because we have these suitcases and they look like they could store our entire living room uh-huh. in them. And there are three of them, you know, and um, the smallest bag is for us. And then the two humongous <laughs> bags are for the child and all of their accessories. Um, and uh, yes, any number of things can go wrong and you hope that they don't, but they often do. I think the world is divided into two kinds of people. The the kinds of people who are on a plane and give you a dirty look when your child is not behaving perfectly. And then there are the kinds of people who sympathize and are kind to you. Do I have the universe summed up just about right? I think that is absolutely right. Yeah, there are the people that you feel like you are going to need to buy a drink for when your child is screaming, and then the people who are like, we've been there, we get it. That you <laughs> Can I hold your yeah, child? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have been singing together since you were teenagers. How did your musical and personal relationship develop? We have known each other since middle school. Uh, we were good friends through high school and college and um, performed in a jazz choir together, an acapella group together, and just stayed really good friends. And then um, didn't actually uh, start dating until we both found ourselves in New York City for graduate school. And um, she was there for uh, a master's in music theater, and I was there for a law degree. And so we started dating at that point, ended up being engaged and married, and uh, found ourselves once we settled into our careers, missing a performance outlet. And that was sort of what inspired us to start down this path. This isn't at all what this interview should be about, but did you guys have a crush on each other early on? <laughs> there... Like, did this even occur to you? Oh, I definitely did. <laughs> there was definitely crushing and never the perfect moment per se. <laughs> he you... was also way too nice for me when I was oh, younger. So I, I needed see. to grow into that. And, and she was too cool. So I see. You needed a bad boy at the time. <laughs> at the time. Is is music your love language? It's definitely our like spousal ESP. I feel like we think both of us think in music and then when we have these big moments and like big occurrences in our life or if something funny happens, our banter seems to be in like lyrics and music and that's how we Wait, do you actually like yeah. sing to each other as part of a conversation there's like maybe some like freestyling of like <laughs> rap lyrics that occurs in our relationship <laughs> or or ly- limericks or lyrics that you happen. two are adorkable <laughs> adorkable more <laughs> than anything dork, more yes. than anything it's having we we process these big moments as parents and immediately think that has to be a song now. Hmm. And and here's how that song feels. Right. And here's the musical genre that that song needs to be in or, or that kind of thing. Because in, in musical theater, which is where we spend a lot of our life, <laughs> um, when there's not enough, when words don't express what you want to say, the next step in a musical is to sing, right? And then if singing's not enough, then you dance. So for us, these huge, weird, funny, or poignant moments occur and logically, the thing to do would be to set it to music Wow! <laughs> for us. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Graham and Christina Fuller of Longmont. They've written um, a musical called In the Trenches about parenting, and uh, it's going to be on stage in Denver later this week. You know, this is funny, this musical. It's also quite tender. I think of a tune called Glide. Before we hear it, Graham, set it up for us. Sure. So when uh, 
our son was really young. He was not the best sleeper, as uh, babies are sometimes not. And we, I, I remember many nights he and I had sort of a map of the house where I would bounce up and down the hallway to get him back to sleep and then and then put him down. A map of the house. In other words, you had a routine, a kind of trail. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. And so uh, it was one of those things where those moments in the middle of the night felt eternal. Uh, but at the same time, suddenly it ended and I didn't have to do that anymore. And And to me, it felt like this pull of these moments that are so difficult and feel like they're taking forever, but at the same time, they are instant and fleeting in the terms of your entire life. Oh, that's beautiful, this idea that in the moment, you probably want nothing more than for it to end. And then they end, and you're left with some nostalgia. Exactly. A baby doesn't say a baby forever. Head to bed, grab a book. Rest your head in the nook of my arm. Fill your head, you fill mine. See your eyes as they shine and discover. And I think to myself, just what will you become? Was music a part of this ritual? I can imagine you walking around the house singing to your son. At the time, it was not. He he definitely would get bedtime songs, but at the time I wanted nothing more than to uh, get him back to sleep, and he was more of a silence kind of a guy. Mm. Um, that song has now actually become a, a bedtime lullaby for our kids, which is kind of a cool f- full circle thing. Um, but at the time, I wanted pure silence. <laughs> and I'm sure that if you were walking around the house, that meant Christina was hopefully sleeping. That, and was, that, that was the goal. Right. And so you would have wanted silence. Quiet on the set. <laughs> do, Christina, do you sing to the kids? Oh, a lot. Yes, all the time. Embarrassingly so for them. Well, yeah. I was just going to say, there's a point at which that stops being, uh, for them, comforting and probably starts being really, really uncool. <laughs> I think we're starting to see glimmers of that in our seven-year-old. <laughs> have they heard the musical and what do they think of it? They have definitely heard the musical. Um, is maybe not appropriate for kids as all of our musical is, but they have been so much a part of it that um, they they have heard all of it. Um, multiple times. Um, they think, I I think our youngest loves it and she dances around the house and while we're rehearsing, um, our oldest, we started to joke. We're like, watch yourself because we might write a song about <laughs> this moment. <laughs> Mortifying <laughs> for them. Uh, I don't have kids. I have a lot of friends with kids. And, you know, some of them have all but disappeared uh, some have maintained, I think, more of a balance between their lives before children and after. You know, my mom used to say about having me that I joined a life already in progress and that she was going to maintain her friendships and, and, and some of her old rituals. What, what kind of parents are you? Which category would you say you fit into? I think in the beginning, it is very 
all-consuming. And like we said, you feel like you're in the trenches. But then at some point you start to emerge once you I think once everyone starts sleeping a little bit more um, <laughs> and we joke and I've actually written a song in our show about the importance of our friends who do not have children because it allows us to have a social life so these friends of ours um, my sister and her husband some dear friends of ours they come over after bedtime and that allows us to have a glass of wine feel like we're like a little bit cool for a few hours um, so yeah has this been cathartic Graham I, I think the show has been therapeutic to write. Uh, I we hope that it's therapeutic to see uh-huh. as well. Um, and uh, definitely, we have taken big moments, uh, big intense feelings, and musicalized them and um, made them into lyrics. And uh, it has helped us process those moments. Well, I suppose you'll want people to get a babysitter and come see the show. Christina and Graham Fuller of Longmont have written in the trenches a parenting musical. It runs this weekend at the Elaine Wolf Theater in Denver. You're now hearing the tune Second Child Blues. His name's embroidered on all of my stuff. His picture's emblazoned all over our home. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.